Hey everyone, welcome to the Landlord Association podcast. I'm your host, George Gao. This is a podcast by the landlords and for the landlords in the greater Houston area. We'll discuss tips, strategies, techniques to help our listeners to be more educated and ultimately become more successful rental property owners and investors. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 30. Today we have Michael Siegel, a local investor and broker who has been investing in the greater Houston area for more than 25 years. As he would tell you in the introduction, he graduated from the Texas A&M University and got a business degree from the Houston Baptist University. He went on to become the CFO of a multi-million dollar company before following his passion into real estate. What impressed me most about Michael is not only his wealth and knowledge from years investing, but also his passion for sharing information and helping others in the real estate business in every stage of investing. Everything from acquisition to diligence to rehab as well as property management, which sometimes can be the hardest part. Michael not only shared a lot of golden nuggets about his investment and property management philosophies, but also what drives him is helping others to succeed in his business. He knows what it's like to be a real estate investor and always has his client's best interest in mind. I was really impressed with all the anecdotes he shared and the examples of the recent deals he and his clients have done in the last six to eight months during the pandemic. I'll provide Michael's contact information in the show notes if you want to get in touch with him or get on his email list to receive off-market properties. So, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Siegel from Bio City Living. Michael, welcome to the Landlord Association podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. You know, I met you through, um, you know, various networking events. And uh, uh, tell us about, a little bit about yourself and what you do before you get into real estate. Um, all right. I've been a real estate investor for about 25 years now. I bought my first property in 1995. Um, I became a licensed real estate agent in 2000. So I actually, I think I just celebrated my 20th year being a real estate agent uh, last month. Um, My last corporate job was CFO of a tax company. Uh, Before that, I was a divisional controller for waste management and Phillips services. Um, I just enjoyed real estate more, being your own boss. I've had a couple of brokerages, a couple of shops where I sold a lot of foreclosures, uh, especially from 2000 to about 2011, 2012. Um, I've been pretty steady with the company I've been with now. Uh, I set up my own team uh, with Bayou City Living called the Seago Group. I've got uh, four people on my team and then uh, really been heavily focusing on clients that want to buy, buy and hold properties, investment properties, and doing a lot of uh, property management for them, helping them to manage the rehab, do the due diligence on the properties, help them find tenants, tenant screenings, and then even disposition of properties when it's time to unload it and go find something else to do. A little bit more about my background. Uh, I have a bachelor's in finance from Texas A&M University, and I have an MBA in accounting from Houston Baptist. So um, I'm not your typical real estate agent. I'm just a numbers freak. So that's all that I do. I walk a property in five minutes, tell you whether it's a good deal or not, be within about five to 10% of the rehab budget. And uh, real estate to me is just a numbers game. If the numbers make sense and we get into a property with little money out of pocket and it's going to cash flow nicely, then it's time to move on. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know you did the property management side too. So basically you're servicing clients from end to end, 
right? You're, you're helping them look at the property, evaluate it on the acquisition side, uh, all the way through the PM cycle, getting the tenant, and also and also disposition. Um, yeah. And then, go ahead. The biggest thing, yeah, the biggest thing in real estate, and I, I tell this every, I tell all everybody up front, I'm not a, I don't care about my paycheck, and. Yes, I enjoy getting paid, but I don't care about my paycheck because if a client doesn't make money or has a bad experience, I lose a client. And that's the way that I view real estate. So the paycheck's always going to be there if you provide a good product and a good service. On top of that, your contractors make or break you in this business. If you have a contractor that's going to wind up stealing money from you, that puts you in the hole from the get-go. And I definitely make sure that my clients deal with contractors that are upfront and honest and aren't going to ask for like 50% on day one of their rehab budget. So I do visit all of my clients rehab projects once a week. Nice. Okay. We can, we can jump in there. Um, so how do, so how does somebody new without any experience get vet a contract? How do you vet a contractor? Uh, how do I vet a contractor? You know, the contractors that I use, one, obviously it's a referral. Um, usually my two general, general contractors that I've used, I've used one for 18 years and we've done about 400 rehabs. So I trust Neil 100%. I know he's not going to screw a client um, and he's not going to take their money. And actually he actually doesn't even take any money up front, even though I've told him that he needs to do a draw on the first day. Um, I've got a couple other contractors that I've done about a 50 to 100 projects with. Um, every contractor is different. Some contractors are faster than others. Some are slower than others. As long as you have that expectation of what it, the project's going to be and how long it's going to take, then at least I can manage expectations up front. Um, the challenges I've had over my career is finding a good electrician, a good plumber, a good HVAC uh, company, and I've actually picked up some referrals over the last two months that I've tried out on my personal houses. I always try out contractors on my personal houses first before I give them out to clients because I want to make sure that I don't have the quality of work is going to be where I expect it to be and also the payment schedule, whether it's half up front on, let's say, a small plumbing job which I, I understand that contractors need to have money to go get supplies for your job. So, you know, I definitely try out all the contractors first on my personal house houses before I pass them out to clients. That's great advice. And um, I mean, everybody had bad experiences with contractors. Correct. Um, you know, I, I think it's part of the ritual for real estate investing. If you haven't come across bad contractors, you probably haven't invested enough. Um, and, and how, I mean, do you just, um, I guess you get just after a couple of jobs, you just know they don't perform. Is that how you kind of sort through the, the one that doesn't perform when you come across a bad one? I do. Uh, after every project and even during the project, I sit down with the contractors and say, hey, you need to pick up the pace. Mm -hmm. Quality of work's not up to par. So we're going to have to get this corrected. Um, I don't wait till the end of the project. I mean, I, I, because I'm on site once a week and it's usually more than once a week, um, contractors don't want to see me on site. They don't want to see me on the job site because they know that I'm going to point out every little detail. My OCD dictates that. So 
I know if the paint lines are not straight or they didn't hang the mirror quite right or the light fixture is off by half an inch, I'm going to see that. So contractors know I have high expectations because I just prefer to have good product out there because you get wind up getting top dollar on whether it's a flip or you're going to be renting out the property. And I like my clients to get top dollar. Absolutely. And for somebody who doesn't have, they're not very handy like myself, do you recommend investors to do some uh, projects on their own, whether it's you know, flooring and tiling to kind of know what they're getting into so they can know what they're looking at? Or do you think it's something just, you know, whether you know or just not? If they have the time, yes. I I prefer clients that don't have a problem turning a screwdriver or, or nailing in with a hammer. Um, I I have clients that they they only want to walk it after everything's done, uh, simply because they they just get overwhelmed. And so, to me, it doesn't matter. I, the way that I feel about it is if I'm painting a house or having to go shop for materials, that is, I'm losing money. And the reason that I say that is, if I'm at Home Depot picking up supplies or in the house painting and the next door neighbor is trying to track me down because they've got a family emergency and need to sell their house, I'm missing out on an opportunity. So, uh, and I have clients, I mean, my general contractors buy flips from me. So they understand that making money, and I, and I prefer my general contractors to do flips so that they understand what the clients are going through that they're working for. So they understand that there's a time frame and that every single day costs a client money. So, I, you know, clients, if they want to get that experience, great. If they don't, I, I don't have an issue with that either. Uh, and, and as I said, every client is different. Um, you know, a lot of my, I'd say probably about 25, 30% of my client base are real estate agents and they don't know how to go find properties. They don't have the contractors. They don't have the contacts. And I certainly have no problems. I mean, to me, that is just a feather in my company's cap to say, I've got 20, 25% of my clients are real estate agents that are using buy and holds and flip properties. Yeah, yeah definitely. Houston has a lot of real estate agents. Uh, yes, we do. That. <laughs> um, so, and then just the last thing on the contractors, and you mentioned that you, the couple guys you really uh, done a lot of projects with, you really trust. Um, are they general contractors or are they um, subcontractors? You, do you like they're to general, deal with they're general contractors? Okay. They have they have subcontractors uh, on their payroll. Um, sometimes I will dictate a particular subcontractor that I want to use. Um, so the plumber, electrician, and HVAC company that I found here in the last couple of months that I've actually worked on my personal stuff, uh, personal houses, I have passed those names and numbers out to my GCs and tell them, hey, I want you to give them a try on a couple of projects. See how their pricing is. See how you work with them. Um, simply because I do think general, I just as everybody gets complacent with the contractors that they have, they may not necessarily go out and shop to see if there's somebody out there doing a job better for less money. Because I think that is always happened. We can always find somebody better that's gonna take less money. Um, it's just a matter of spending the time to go find that person. 
Right. And cheaper is not always better. That's right. It is not. Just be worried somebody offer a really, really cheap price. And so let's, uh, let's go, let's uh, hit on the real estate agent. Do you, do you, did you start as a, being an agent first or do you, do you no. start in real estate being an investor? I was an investor first. Mm -hmm. uh, bought my first property in 1995. Um, and I had a decent real estate agent and then I started doing a deep dive into my numbers where I could cut expenses. And then I realized that my real estate agent was making six figures off of me in 1999 and 2000. So at that point I contacted track to find out exactly how many classes I needed to take to become a real estate agent. And it was only two with my bachelor's degree and my master's degree. I only had to take two more classes. So I took those two classes, fired my real estate agent and, uh, took over finding my own properties at that point. Um, I was primarily buying just foreclosures um, that I was rehabbing and doing buy and holds for myself. And then um, I had a, an REO real estate agent approach me and said, hey, I want you to open a branch under us in Katy. And so I opened up a branch in 2000. I think that was 2001. Um, and then the real estate agency side really took off for me at that point. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely went through a period in 0809 where we had a lot of foreclosures and, um, yep. and that might be coming back. <laughs> a year or two. I, I don't necessarily think it'll be coming back. Um, I, I think there's going to be, I honestly, I think the government's going to really push back on the mortgage companies and say, Hey, you need to do what you can to keep these people in the house you know, loan modifications or whatever. So I do expect probably next year that we will have a, another round of TARP that we had in 2009 um, where the government's just going to say, hey, we're going to give you some bailout money, but you need to keep these people in their house. I don't think we'll see the number, record number of foreclosures that we saw in 2009, 2010. I don't think we'll ever see that again. Yeah, no, there, there were some difficult times and, and the banks were robo-signing and there were so many problems uh, yep. with the foreclosure uh, industry at that time. So I think we hopefully we'll learn from that and uh, this, this time will be better. Although, you know, you know we're hoping the economy uh, opens back up and we don't have to go through that, uh, you know, the, the upcoming foreclosure wave or like you said, maybe hopefully the government steps in. Yep. Um, so, and... Um, so you, you started with your experience as investors and there's always new investors, whether from out of state or, you know, just probably from, you probably work with international investors too. So what do you tell somebody when they're looking for uh, their first or second properties? Do you tell them, hey, look around, make sure you know the location, make sure you know the, what type of property you're looking in, what's the price range, and what kind of returns they're expecting? What, what do you tell a new, new, new investor? You know, the biggest thing on, on, on like a, a newbie, a, a very first time that's looking for a buy and hold is I want to make sure it's something that's going to be nice and safe. Something that it's not going to be a home run, okay, because real estate is a long game. It's not a short game. It's not a get rich quick overnight. Um, if you do your work and do your due diligence, you know, the biggest thing is I want to make sure that a client is comfortable. If they have a particular area of town that they want to stay in, then I let them know. If 
they truly don't have a particular area of town, then they're kind of open. You know, there are some definitely some zip codes that are small price tag houses that get good rents, high rent areas. Um, I want to make sure that they're going to be cash flow positive. And I don't care if it's 200 bucks a month or if it's seven or 800 bucks a month, as long as it's cash flow positive. I do also want to make sure that they have a minimum of a 20% equity capture. Um, and we're conserving their nest egg as much as we can. So we're limiting the funds that they have to bring to the table. Um, so those are, those are the things that I look for that when I mentor a client, I'll, I'll do as much handholding as they want to. Um, and I think that I don't charge to be a mentor. Uh, I, I enjoy that side of the business people that want to learn real estate um we all make mistakes i i you know i've done 3500 transactions in my career so i've made plenty of mistakes i have no problem sharing those mistakes and letting clients know hey i wouldn't do it this particular way and this is the reason why uh simply because i and i'll let them know and i'm dealing with a client now who has a tenant for a house in Crystal Beach. The tenant constantly pays late. The tenant does not respond to text or phone calls or emails. Uh, we tried to renew his lease for 12 months. I tried to contact him for 10 days. He didn't bother responding. So my client said, Michael, please go post a three-day vacate notice. He hasn't paid rent for October. Posted it on their front door and within 20 minutes, I get a phone call from the tenant hey, why am I being evicted? Well, you're not being evicted, but we need to extend the lease or let us know that you're moving out because you're not responding to me. You're not responding to the owner of the house. And it's, unfortunately, tenants just make excuses. And the tenants either train you or you train your tenants. And he got spanked on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. And, uh, so we kind of got him straightened out last night and he re-upped for another year and realized that he's got 900 of late fees, $900 of late fees that he hasn't paid. And now he's got a $200 trip charge for me having to go down to Crystal Beach and post a three-day vacate notice. And hey, we're not renewing your lease on his front door. Yeah. So each, getting back to it, each client is different. I definitely like the newbies. I like to do a lot of hand-holding and mentorship. I will teach them everything that they want to know. My top client hasn't bought a property in 15 months, but they bought 14 properties in the previous two years. We still talk every single day. Okay. You know, and it's right now it's more about property management. I'm not doing property management for them, uh, but they had earned enough positive cash flow of their 14 rental properties that the husband was able to quit his job making a hundred grand a year. So all he's doing is doing his own property management and repairs, but they still call and say, Hey, you know, this tenant constantly calls about repairs. Yeah. Just tell them no. That's the first thing when they text and when they call, you just say no, then ask what their question is because the only reason a tenant is calling is to spend your money. That's it. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Um, no, it's, uh, 
that's a really interesting anecdote. And we all go through tenant issues. Um, yep. And how, how do you, how do, you uh, do you have any tips on recommending landlords to uh, screen their tenants? Do you use a software to, rec- to screen them or do you I insist use, on meeting them? I, I use rent prep. Uh, they, they turn theirs around in a two to three hours, usually five hours on the weekends. Um, I do try to uh, talk to the tenants the applicants up front. Um, I do a lot of due diligence. I call their previous landlords. I call their job. Um, so I don't necessarily completely rely on. The Those are the things up front. And you do as much screening as you want to and as much due diligence. You're still going to have issues with tenants at some point in your career. So it's, if you think you're going to get into real estate and not have any issues, that's just not the case. You will have an issue eventually. And so if you have to evict somebody, and I tell my clients up front, because I do seminars as well, I tell my clients up front, I want a tenant to stop paying you as soon as possible. I want you to go through the eviction as soon as possible even if it's on your first property, because the sooner that you go through that issue and realize it's no big deal, then you're going to be more comfortable going forward being a landlord. So um, I do tell, I do tell clients that up front. I have no problems evicting somebody. Um, This is a business and you don't become friends with your tenants. You don't invite them over to your parties or, your get-togethers or have a drink with them. It's a business relationship, period. They owe you money and they owe you money on the first. After the third, it's late, so charge your late fees. Yeah, don't drag it on. Yeah, don't accept partial payments. No. Nope. Uh, don't, don't take excuses and, um, you know, like you said, it's, it's a business. Because your mortgage, yeah, your mortgage company is not going to take excuses from you. Right. They're going to say, where's my money? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, do you recommend landlords use a, like a, a property management software? There's, there's some out there. There's some free ones. There's some ones that you know, charge a monthly fee. that does a pretty good job, uh, in my opinion, um, that keep track of the contracts, renewal. Does the, you can keep track of the, the jobs out there. Uh, or if it's somebody who had, that may have 10 or less property, they can just do it on Excel. Do you have a recommendation? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think in every particular client or landlord is going to be different. You know, it depends how good they are at bookkeeping and the detail stuff. Um, I was able to use Excel spreadsheet handling about 30 properties. Um, I currently don't use a property management software. I don't think until you probably get to about 10 to 15, if you're doing it on your own, uh, that you need the property management software. Um, I do have some clients that have five properties and it was just nice and easy for them. And uh, she handles all of her own stuff and uses a property management software. Um, I have not invested in any, uh, my property management company, we're able to just handle everything right now on Excel spreadsheet. I, but I do anticipate in 2021 towards the end that I'm going to have to purchase the software um, because my billing is getting a little bit cumbersome each month. Uh, we have repairs and things like that. So I do think that uh, some of those softwares, when you get up to enough properties, are, are, are beneficial. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this the the industry recognized that and they're they're trying to make the software as friendly to landlords as possible. So definitely do your diligence and ask around for recommendations. And I think there are some that add value for sure. So absolutely. Um, okay. And um, you work with out of state investors. Um, what what is it about Houston that uh, makes the numbers work and people from people from West Coast and East Coast who are you know in the you know talking about million dollar properties and you can come to Houston and buy a cash flow property. What is it that attracts uh, from out of state investors and what are some of the uh, things that you can tell them about concerns you know they should be worried about uh, in investing in Houston or in Texas? Um, Houston, you know, depending on the month, we're either the third or fourth largest city in the U.S. But concerning our real estate prices, we're number 78. So that's what makes Houston, and I'm going to say Metro Houston because it's not just Houston, it's Houston and surrounding areas. Um, our real estate is extremely inexpensive here. I mean, there are 77 other cities towns that have more expensive real estate than what Houston does. Um, we have a nice variety of urban and suburban here. Um, we're a fairly old city and we're spread out. Um, you know, I think there are two states that actually could fit inside of Houston city limits at the same time. So, you know, when you're talking about a state like Rhode Island, that's only 26 square miles, I can fit Rhode Island twice inside of Houston city limits. Um, so, I, you know, we've got really from Brookshire out to Beaumont, from Galveston up to Huntsville, and my clients, and especially in the last two months, I've started picking up properties in San Antonio, Austin area, and Dallas, and I'm getting referrals for clients from for Austin property, San Antonio, and Dallas. So, um, yeah, we're just expensive. Uh, are inexpensive here and we're getting top rents you know even though we're setting records and I just right before I jumped on the podcast uh, September was a record-breaking month for us for the past 19 years September had its best month uh, for the past 19 Septembers Wow! and for us to have that and that's been the case June July August and now four months in a row we've had the best month in a global pandemic and I think that a lot of that has to do with one low inventory two interest rates staying extremely low three investors realizing that there are potential good deals out there uh, so you know I just think that we're just inexpensive I mean we're the biggest state in the continental U.S., but in terms of our prices, Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas, they're all in the top 20 in terms of the real estate prices. Houston, number 78. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Um, we are priced very, um, you know, it's much better than some of the coastal cities as well as Austin and Dallas. And, and I guess, you know, it's not, for people who are banking on appreciation, you know, we're not, really high appreciation state, I mean, uh, city, uh, probably average three or 4% a year, like uh, most of America, rather than the, on the coast. So, um, and, you know, what do you tell investors who are, who are looking to it for appreciation rather than cash flow? 
Well, I, again, it go it goes back to real estate's a long game. It's not a short game. It's not a quick, you know, quick uh, cash game. Now, definitely, clients want to get flips, and they watch all the reality TV shows. And uh, yes, I think about eighty percent of that is some good information, but I think twenty percent of it is a TV show, and that is staged for behind the scenes. People can make money in flips, but they need to understand that not all flips are going to go as smoothly as you want to. And I have clients that start putting numbers into a spreadsheet from day one. And I'm like, you need to stop doing that because you're going to be focusing on this and you know, your offer may come in 10 grand less. And usually the first offer you get is going to be the best offer that you get. So, you know, there are appreciation you know you get three or four percent but if you own a property for 10 years that's 30 or 40 percent over 10 years mm-hmm. you know there are many blue chip stocks that don't get that kind of return in a 10-year period yeah, to me i much rather have especially here in houston i'd rather own a house than own a stock you know if it's a stock that's going to start tomorrow on the NASDAQ and I'm going to be out of it in 30 days. And I'm going to ride that wave up to its uh, top point. Great. That's the short term. Real estate. It's just a long term. It's a long term play. And um, if you're doing a good product and you're doing what you need to do on your rentals, then you're going to have plenty of appreciation in it. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, people think fix and flip are easy. It's, it's, um, you know, a lot of people get into it, the margins are impressed and, uh, it's harder and harder to, uh, to, to do that in this market. Correct. Okay, great. And then, um, I, I mean, I, I get your email list and, uh, I, I see that you have, um, single family, one to four family, one to four unit, single families, uh, and as well as, um, commercial properties so is that something you get into now for commercial properties on the bigger size and how do you um, uh, look at commercial properties in this area well and right now I think the commercial properties with the global pandemic there's been about 20% of our businesses have had to close their doors in the last six seven months Um, so I think you're seeing a lot more open commercial spaces for commercial tenants um we are seeing i'm seeing a lot more and i'm defining a commercial property as a fiveplex or higher anything that's not a one to four so i'm seeing a lot more fiveplexes sixplexes eightplexes small apartments up to 20 that are coming through my list that are what i term good deals now a anything a fiveplex or higher is going to be a commercial appraisal Okay, and it's going to be more based on the income approach than true comps in the area. So investors need to understand that. Um, And it's not something that is easily refinanced. Definitely, I've got hard money lenders that I can refer my clients to that can purchase these up front, roll in some rehab costs uh, instead of going and putting 20 or 25 or 30 percent down and then having to pay rehab costs on top of that out of pocket. Um, I'm just a big fan of what I call using other people's money. I'd rather pay interest and then conserve my nest egg because I don't know where my next deal may be coming from. 
because it may show up five hours after I've just signed this deal. So, um, but yeah, I'm starting to see a lot more commercial properties. I'm seeing investors start getting into, you know, the five plexes plus up. Um, I do think those cash flows are a lot better than just a single family residence. The appreciation is not as great on the commercial properties um, as they are on the single family. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a trade-off. It's definitely a trade-off, but yeah, I'm, you know, I'm starting to see some strip centers that owners are willing to owner finance just to get out from under the note at the moment. They get into a bad way, had a couple of tenants stop pay, tenants close their doors, moved out, whatever the situation may be. So, um, yeah, it's, those investors are starting to come out of the woodworks a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, there is an expectation that there's there's going to be um, some commercial property that people who pay too much for last couple of years uh, on a very con compressed cap rate, have too much debt on them uh, that can't service their debt uh, because their tenants have gone out of business and uh, there'll be some commercial, whether it's offices or restaurants, uh, those should also be talking about. So. Yeah, so you know, maybe that's a trend probably nationwide. I mean, it's not just Texas, right? Um, no, it's not. It's not just Texas. Yeah. I don't think we're hit as hard as some areas in the country, uh, simply because our cost of living is so low here compared to, you know, our cost of living. Actually, I don't even think I think we're in triple digits. I think we're like 110 in the in the country for our cost of living here uh, compared to other cities across the U.S. Yeah, and that's that's the benefit of Texas, especially the Houston market. Is our, where everything is just so inexpensive here. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't complain about that at all. Uh, no, living out here. So, um, awesome. And that's uh, and, and some some of the biggest complaint I hear from uh, investors are are two things, right? They can't find the deals, and they don't have the financing for it. How do you how do you tell people to to address those two issues? They can't find deals and they don't have financing for it. You know, and I a lot of my clients I, and I get a ton of referrals. I get a lot of referrals from my conventional lenders that I use. Uh, I get a lot of referrals from my insurance agent that I primarily use. I get a lot of referrals from my hard money lenders and then my current clients. Um, I average about twenty new referrals a week. Um, and I definitely think that people, that, newbies, they don't want, they don't need to rush into a property. Don't rush into a property just because you have to get the deal done and you, you, you're just ready to chomp at it. I think you have to be especially patient on that first one to make sure the number's right, to get a little bit of experience so that you understand on project number two and number three and number four. As I said, I've been involved in 3,500 real estate transactions and I learn something new every day in real estate, whether it's a new financing option or a new lease option or, you know, just thinking outside the box. Um, and I think clients need to take that approach to, hey, I need to slow down and make sure I don't make a mistake because one mistake in real estate, especially early in the game and you're out of real estate. You may be out of real estate forever. Um, and I don't like clients to, I don't like those clients to make some mistake. Now, when I meet a new client, I definitely ask about their liquidity position. I ask if they've been approved with 
a hard money lender because I, I do utilize a lot of hard money. Um, I ask if they have private money also available. And if they're looking for buy and holds on a one to four, have they been pre-approved on a conventional lender to do the rate term refinance? So I spend, you know, 20 to 30 minutes with all new clients, whether it's over the phone or a Zoom meeting, uh, just to make sure they all have their ducks in a row before we go out and start looking at a property. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't go out and get a, do a $40,000 rehab on your first property. No. <laughs> and, and, and don't, don't buy in the hood on your first property. Right. Yeah. That's, that's definitely uh, some of the things people learn the hard way. Yep. Um, and, and do you have a minimum recommendation people should have, you know, 20,000 minimum saved up to invest in the first property, 50,000. I mean, is there, I, mean, I know hard money definitely minimize some of the money out of pocket, but I, I recommend people should have some money. There's, this is not yeah. a no money game, right? No, it's not. It, if they're going to do a flip, I recommend they have 40 grand in the bank. I actually won't even take them on unless they've got 40 grand in the bank because one it's not that we're going to spend forty thousand dollars of your money but it's that safety net it's that cushion because i don't want to get a phone call at 11 30 at night on a friday night after two or three beers or a bottle of wine and you realize that you're out of money come monday because you've overspent and you didn't want to listen or you know you've hired your brother-in-law to be your contractor and he ran off with $15,000 of your money though. So yeah, I do recommend that clients have some money in the bank. If it's a buy and hold, um, really about $25,000 in the bank is about the minimum that I want them to have. Um, you know, there's some clients that have come to me, Michael, Hey, I put a property under contract and, I realize I don't have the funds to close on this transaction or rehab it. Okay. Well, some, we got to get you out of that contract somehow, some way. So, you know, I'll definitely run the numbers and it may be at that point that you just need to wholesale the contract, you know, go make a quick $5,000, get completely out of it. You're going to be very happy with $5,000 in your bank and not have a bunch of stress moving forward. Then you can go on to your next transaction. So, you know, I, in 25 years, I think I've seen it all. Uh, and I, and I say that, and then I'm going to get a phone call from somebody that says, Michael, I'm in trouble. I don't know what I'm doing. Help me out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what part of the, your partnership with, uh, you know, hard money lenders or commercial lenders, uh, you know, come in play too. They can help you vet the, you know, vet your finances, make sure you have no money in the bank to do a project before they lend to um, you know, their money and be a partner uh, on your project, right? Yeah. Now, and, and, you know, I've really, over the last five years, I've put together a really good team that I work with. Um, I use Red Door Funding. Uh, David Hoke's my primary contact over there. Um, I know one of the owners, David Williams. Uh, we speak daily. Um, I've got two or three conventional lenders that I use. Um, I've got a real good insurance agent that I've used for 20 years. Um, and that's the kind of team that you want to put together because my criteria is I don't care about my paycheck and people look at me like I'm nuts, but I honestly don't care about my paycheck. And if 
anybody else on my team, if Red Door came back and said, oh, I feel I can charge an extra point to this client, I'd fire them on the spot. Because I don't, I'd rather make a little bit here on 20 transactions over the next four years for one client than make a lot on one transaction and then they're gone. Yeah. Because I just, that's just the way I am. I, I, I'm kind of old school in terms of customer service. You know, I like to look a person in the eye. And uh, before COVID, I like to shake their hand. Um, so right now, I just do fist bumps. But, you know, if I look a person in the eye and say, hey, I'm heading back to the office. I'm going to email you this referral. That's the first thing I do when I get to the office is email that referral. Because every client is just as important as every other client. I don't have a, and I don't care if I'm making 350 bucks filling out a lease uh, contract or I'm going to make $5,000 selling. To me, that $350 client is just as important as the one where I'm going to make $5,000. It's all about the customer service. So I don't, uh, I don't mail it in on those $100 lease extensions or the $350 lease preparation. Um, so everything is important because it's always important to the client. I, I am genuinely concerned about my client's money. I don't like them to spend money when they don't have to because if they're conserving their nest egg, then they're able to buy more properties. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's two-way street. I think the landlord and the client has to be working with you, have a good attitude, and be try to be as knowledgeable as possible on these, learning learn as much as possible, and uh, you know, not just too laid back and, and not be on top of their game too. I think there's some bad clients out there who are, you know, uh, taking too much of your time. You know, they have the 80-20 rule. Some of the bad clients take up, eight, you know, 80% of your time. The, the good clients only take up 20% of your time. So there are... Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly right. You know, and, uh, you know, I, there used to be a time, especially 2005 to before 2008 financial crunch, I didn't quit my day until I fired a client. Just because, you know, I want clients to be successful, but, you know, I'll have, in the past, I've had clients call me 17, 18 times a day saying, hey, what color paint am I supposed to use? What color, you know, flooring am I going to use? You know, and, and I explain a lot of this, especially on buying whole properties. Hey, I'll give you the paint colors. I'll, I'll give you the fixture colors. I'll give you the flooring. You know, buying whole properties, I recommend that you don't put any carpet in the house whatsoever because you're going to have to replace it as soon as that tenant moves out. So go in with a nice vinyl plank or an LVP or an engineered hardwood that's going to last you for 10 or 15 years. And then when I go into the property and they put a carpet in there, I'm like, why'd you do this? You know? So yeah, it's, there are some bad clients out there. There's bad real estate agents. There's bad lenders out there. And I've, as I've said, the team that I've put together and I still add to my team, I've got an approved vendor list. There are people that I have used personally that I don't have issues with. And if I have a problem, then I'm going to talk to whoever that may be, whether it's a client or part of my team or a vendor. I, you know, I don't like problems. I don't like problems and I don't like drama. That's great. Yeah. I think we're all, we can all use some of that, yep. especially this, this, uh, 
time of the year. And um, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing coming down the road in terms of, um, you know, the economy and what the government thinks it's going to do. Uh, you know, and, and in Houston, the market is kind of like, it's kind of nationwide. We, we're driven by a low interest rate. Uh, we're right now, we're experiencing low inventory, like a lot of the part of the country. And, um, you know, do you recommend people wait on the sideline or do you, I mean, people say, oh, I'm going to wait until next year to see how it shakes out before buying a property. Um, where do you see the trend is going and do you, do you recommend people doing that? Just waiting and, you know, waiting for the low point or something in the future. I, I will let you know, I, as I've mentioned, I've been in the business for 25 years. So I've gone through the oil crunch in 2001, went through 2008 and 2009 and the financial meltdown. Again, in 2012 and 2013, a financial meltdown. And it seems like we have this about every seven years. In 2020, we're in the global pandemic. And then, you know, some financial difficulties as well. You can make, if you're going to be in real estate, you can make money in any market, whether it's a global pandemic or we're riding high. And as soon as you put something up on the market, it goes, you have multiple offers. If you're not comfortable, then you need to sit on the sidelines. If you're comfortable and ready to move forward, we'll find you something nice and safe. Um, I will tell you my last June, July, August, and September have been the best four months of my career in 25 years. So I picked up three properties personally in those four months. I think I have done 28 transactions for clients in those four months. Um, so I, you know, I can't recommend one way or another. If you're comfortable and ready to move forward, definitely give me a call. If you need to wait on the sidelines and see how things progress, then do that. I think everybody's different. I do think it's an extremely good time to get into real estate and pick up additional properties. That's great advice. Always do your due diligence and uh, you know, always be on lookout for it. There's always good deals out there. You just gotta Correct. And uh, you mentioned, uh, I think, you know, people are more working from home now. And how has that, how has, you know, the COVID and, you know, this pandemic changed your business, real estate agency business in particular? Do you do, you do less showings in person now? Do you do more business online? I mean, how does it affect the real estate agent business? I, um, I like, I see all properties that my clients buy and even myself. I, I do not recommend that a client buy a property sight unseen. Now I do have some clients that have wanted me to go look at the property, take pictures, take videos and send it to them. And we've done enough business that they trust my opinion. Um, so we've done a little bit more of that. I don't think my definitely in March and April, first part of May, I definitely slowed down my business because there was just not enough information out there to really what the pandemic was going to, what was going to happen. Uh, so I did slow down for about 60 days, but that was self-imposed. Um, title companies really are not letting extra people into their offices. So that's actually saved me some time. Uh, so I'm not having to go to my closings with my clients. A lot of closings are happening uh, via DocuSign now. Um, I've had some clients that were in Mexico, they were able to do DocuSign instead of having to do wet signatures. Um, there's been closings by Zoom and DocuSign. Um, you know, there's been changes to where husband and wives 
if the property was in a husband's name, so wife hasn't had to sign. Um, now, definitely on the rental side and the property management, obviously you got to show the houses to rent them out. So uh, there have been times where I've shown the houses to prospective applicants. There's been times where I've gotten permission from the landlords to give the lockbox code out. Um, so everybody's a little bit different. I do think it's changed. Uh, I think it's changed for the good. And I do think that the what's happening now is probably going to move forward in our real estate market where we're just not going to have as much pomp and circumstance in terms of buying a house. You know, it's not going to be champagne bottles because the title company is trying to get people out of their office as quickly as possible after signing. And, and most of the times they're not even giving their, their hard documents or saying, we'll email them to you in a PDF file. So, you know, it's the closing process is a lot shorter nowadays than uh, what it was six, seven, eight months ago. There's definitely some efficiencies that we we gained that hopefully will continue going forward. Right. Um, yeah, that's those are the things that are happening. Um, and um, we're going to go into a, this uh, a, one of the examples you uh, with your recent deals. If you don't mind sharing, can you kind of tell us about one of the recent deals you did, whether it's for a client or for your personal property, um, what they bought, how they bought it, and how do they finance it? And, and do they sell it or do they uh, keep it? You know, any recent interesting deals they came, you came across? Yeah, um, you know, there are, the last personal one, the last flip that I did, um, I bought it in July. I got, I got emailed. Um, I knew the area, I knew the zip code pretty well. The price was extremely attractive and I only had two pictures. So I think it was like 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. I jumped in the car went out there to walk around the property and pull into the driveway and it was a complete jungle. I could not see anything of the house from the street, which was only about 25 feet. Um, so I was able to get into the house, walk around, took a look at the roof. My biggest things on houses is I wanted to be able to make sure that the roof was in decent shape and there was no foundation issues. I don't care about anything else. Um, and if the price is right, a lot of times I really don't even care about the roof as well, but the roof was in good shape on this one. The foundation was uh, nice and solid and not a ton of sheetrock work. So um, I picked that one up for about 50,000. I put about 30,000. Oh, go ahead. ARV. Yeah. I use hard money. I use red door funding on it. The ARV appraisal came in at 135 and I felt that was a little bit light. Um, I bought it for 50. I put in 30,000 into it. So my total loan was right at about 86,000 because I rolled some closing costs in. Um, I've got it listed for 150. Um, I've been on the market for about two and a half weeks. I've had 27 showings. And of those 27 showings, the buyers are, most 15 of those buyers were FHA loans. And if you're gonna flip a property, you have to own it for 91 days before you can utilize a buyer with an FHA loan. Um, I closed it July 22nd. I finished rehab, I think it was September 15th. September 15th, September 20th, somewhere in there. Um, I always do professional pictures. Um, and we should be under contract this weekend and be completely out of the property before Thanksgiving. So, you know, that particular property, you know, it's gonna be a four month process. 
Um, and that's typical of flips. Um, I've got my primary general contractor bought one in uh, West Spring Branch area, not too far from the Watson explosion that happened about a year ago. Uh, he picked that property up for 60000 put about twenty five into it. Um, the appraisal came in at uh, his ARV. He used Red Door funding for his hard money financing. Um, that appraisal came in at one thirty five. Um, and we listed at one forty five because we were seeing a trend in the market that everything in that subdivision was going under contract within a week. Uh, we had multiple offers in the first three days. Uh, the buyer got cold. The first buyer got cold feet, put back on the market. We had multiple offers again, and we went under contract for twenty grand over list price. So they've already completed their inspections. Uh, there was very minimal stuff on the inspection report. Uh, the appraiser's getting in there on Wednesday, and we should be closing towards the end of October. That's great. It's hard to find properties under two hundred thousand in Spring Branch area. That's a really right. good area, and that's yep. a really good deal, even for the buyer. I think that's a, a yep. It, yeah, it's a very good. It's a it's a good area. I've I've made notes of all the addresses in that subdivision that look like they still need some work. So we're going to reach out to those owners and see if they're looking to sell because I definitely think on something like that, whether it's a flood subdivision or an explosion subdivision, the neighbors want the subdivision to come back. So I feel that. My clients and myself, when we pick up a property and rehab it, you're just helping out the subdivision. You're helping out the community. And that's that's the benefit of real estate. And that's what I enjoy so much about real estate. You're you're able to make some money. You're helping the subdivision. You're going to be providing a good, clean house to a potential tenant or a new homeowner. That's, that's why I like real estate. Yeah, that's great. I think... Um... You know, all real estate investors should have that go in mind, not only to make a profit, but also improve our local community as well, you know, Correct. street by street. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's a great goal. And um, you mentioned, uh, you know, reaching out to those uh, people who are in the neighborhood you know, who may be affected. Is that how you kind of source your deals? You do some marketing, uh, cold calling or, or um, some uh, yellow letter mails or, or do you kind of, yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to do a lot more of that or, or a little more of that. I'm going to say that, um, you know, I'll tell you a lot of my transactions that show up on my property list are people emailing me. Hey, Michael, I know you've got a large database of investors. You know, when you put a property under contract, we close. You're extremely professional. Hey, here's here's the property. Here's the price. So I consolidate those properties onto my property list, plus the ones that you know, I get that I do direct marketing for as well. Um, so, you know, since we've been on, I think we've been on for about 45 minutes now. I think I've had eight people email me uh, properties in, in that time frame. Wow, that's great. So the, some of those are deals. Uh, you know, if the deals are too skinny, I don't put them on my property list. I'll, so I'll scrub the list. Um, but yeah, it's when you've been in the business for 25 years, I'm I don't spend a ton of money on marketing. Um, I, I'm spending because I, I don't have to charge the fees that, that most, you know, like listing a property for rent on MLS. I don't take half a month's rent from a client. I only charge 350 bucks flat fee. Wow. 
So, you know, that saves money on the client side and they come back over and over and over again. Yeah. Doing a great referral by doing personal relationships and having a good reputation is worth, you know, its own weight in gold. That's, that's right. Especially after years and years, it just compounds on itself. More and more people trust you and want to work with you. And that's, uh, that's definitely the best way to get business. And, I, and it doesn't hurt that I have some gray hair as well. <laughs> yeah, I think your experience and your background, it's, uh, it's been, it's good to have. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you for those two examples. That's, that's really good. You know, people, uh, example that people can learn about. Um, we're going to go to the general advice sec segment and, uh, just, so you know, what do you, what do you tell, what's, what's the one piece of advice you tell new, new investors? If there's one piece of advice you tell somebody who are looking to buy their first or second property, what do you think they should be just be cautious or know about learn about before they do that? I don't know that cautious is the right word. Um, we're definitely going to do due diligence up front uh, and we're going to do a lot of it. We're going to visit the property. I'm going to tell you everything that I look for as though I was buying the property, you know, from the curb appeal to the street, to the way the roof looks, I'll tell you as much or as little as you want to know. And I usually tell you more than you want to know. Um, if you don't have a good feeling about it, don't move forward. If you don't, if you, if you're not feeling it, then you're going to have a bad taste in your mouth for the entire process. And even after you own the property. So I definitely think, uh, there's some gut feel to it. Um, and I tell clients, I have no problems passing on a house. Um, and especially if I tell you, hey, I just don't think it's, if, if I'm not feeling it, then I definitely will say, hey, I think you need to pass on it. And let's go see if we can find something that's uh, going to be a little bit better for you, especially for a, a newbie going out. You know, I get uh, clients that want to, you know, they've watched the TV shows and they want to go buy a $300,000 house and a $100,000 rehab. And sell it for 700,000. I, I want no part of that. Not, not first time out of the box. I, this is Houston and you know, the number of houses that sell over half a million dollars are minuscule compared to places like New York and California and even Austin. Uh, we just don't, that's just not our market here. Uh, so I've had some opportunities to clients buy houses in river Oaks and I'm like, uh, -uh. Yeah, I'll enjoy the paycheck, but I, I want yeah. no part of it. I, yeah. I, it's just the houses over there are just ha there's it's so particular because the higher the price, the more finicky those buyers are going to be, and the more they're going to beat you up, and they want everything perfect, and I that's just not something is not something that I want a client of mine, especially a newbie, to be part of. I much rather you go buy a forty thousand dollar house put 15 or 20 into it and sell it for a hundred thousand uh, dollars. You know, I, yeah. th those are the ones that, you know, you do 10 of those a year, you're going to make $400,000. So those are the ones that are nice and easy and go under contract in 10 or 15 days. And uh, you have no issues with those. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything costs more when you buy a bigger house, you can pay yep. more interest. You're going to have more holding costs. And um, like you said, you know, you, you, you can find, less buyers in those upper tiers too. So absolutely good advice. Um, you do a lot of property management. You have a lot of clients. How, how do you manage your time? How do you manage your schedule? You have, 
you have a lot of phone calls coming in. Do you have to keep them in a calendar or do you have a paper pencil way? I, I, I'm old school. Um, I, I keep my contacts on my phone, um, but I, I always carry a notepad and a pen with me. And actually, I, I set my pen down when we started talking. Um, I always carry a notepad and pen with me. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of utilizing my phone uh, for notes and sensitive information because I just feel phones can be hacked too easily um, because our phones are not phones anymore. They're just many computers. So um, I'm just not, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, obviously property management. Um, I do handle a lot of the repairs. And, and when I say I handle them, I, I reach out to the contractors and get those scheduled. Um, most and people don't realize this when a tenant puts in a request, unless it's an emergency, the landlord actually has seven days to get that addressed. When I get a request in, I'm calling the contractor immediately and trying to get that scheduled in the next day. Uh, simply because I, the customer service is, is very key to me, whether it's a client or a tenant. Um, I do make sure that all the, tenants pay their trip charges and their repair deductibles or it gets taken out of their security deposit. Um, I do within about 50 miles, I do make sure that in every lease that there is a $75 trip charge and a $75 repair deductible. Uh, anything over 50 miles that jumps up to a hundred dollar trip charge up to 150. And I actually have a property down in crystal beach for a client and, that one was a $200 trip charge because simply round trip was four hours. So, and that's even, I, I even cut her a deal because she's a longtime client and she works at one of my title companies and they, uh, she refers a lot of business to me. Yeah. That's good advice. And definitely put that in the lease, make, make yep. it up front to the tenants and uh, let them know ahead of time. Hey, you know, this is where you're going to be looking at. If you just keep calling every other day, um, you know, we have all these fixed charges. Yeah. And I've got a good friend of mine that I've leased out her town home and she, uh, she does her own property management cause she works for a property management company. And she's like, I, I don't know what I need to do. This tenant is calling me once a week. And I said, she calls you once a week because you answer once a week and you're not charging trip charges and repair deductibles. I said, I, I told you up front, Either the tenant trains you or you train your tenants. And that tenant has trained you. She knows you're going to respond. Yeah. So don't worry about her text. She's required to put it in email. And that's one thing in my lease is that they have to put it in writing. Either they have to mail it in or do an email. I do not accept requests via text. Yeah. Because it, writing. It, it, it's difficult to have a record of it at that point. Mm. So an email you can print out, put in the file folder, verify, hey, it's a $75 trip charge, it's a $75 repair deductible. So if you really want me to come replace that light bulb, it's going to cost you 150 bucks, And I have no problems doing that. I'll come do that personally myself. Yeah, no, that's good advice for all landlords out there. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to get into a just wrap-up fun segment next. You ready? Always. <laughs> all right. What do you do outside of real estate? Uh, what do you do for fun? Uh, 
obviously watch my Astros. It's been difficult to watch the Texans lately, but at least they fired Bill O'Brien. So I'm kind of excited about the game this weekend. Uh, I mentioned I went to Texas A&M University, so my Aggies are play on Saturdays and uh, I definitely make sure that uh, I carve out some time with that. I've got uh, 18-year-old twins and a 16-year-old and one, two in college. So uh, kids are taking up a lot of my time with their uh, senior year this year. I'll get one that's a junior that they'll be a senior next year. So I uh, try to get on the golf course when I can, and that's not been very often lately. Um, so, and then a couple of times a year, I throw big customer appreciation parties, and that's usually a big crawfish boil and go all out on that. So I enjoy cooking and grilling them some spare time. Awesome. You don't sound very busy at all. No, not at all. Six <laughs> hours of sleep a night. Is that what you get? That's it. Wow. Whew, I need my eight. Oh. But, uh, okay, any uh, recent books or movies you, you liked, you recently seen, or your favorite movies or books that you recommend? You know, I'm a big, I'm a big movie person, and obviously the last six months has put a big damper into that. Um, I don't like watching a lot of new movies on TV, like getting out and escaping, turning my cell phone off. Uh, and going to a movie theater, and I have not, obviously, I haven't seen a movie in seven, eight months now. Um, you know, I'm a big DC and MCU fan, and seeing all those movies, and a big yeah, Tom Hanks uh, fan yeah. as well. Yeah. Anything yeah. Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he has some classics. I mean, those are definitely good movies. Uh, favorite Houston restaurant? Taste of Texas. Very good. Great steak place in the Memorial City area. Yep. Yeah. And uh, if you had to pick between the – I won't make you pick between the Astros and the Aggies and the, and the Texans. Um, any favorite sports? You say football is your favorite sport to follow? Yeah. yeah I, you know, I've, I've been in Houston since 1974. So, um, you know, Astros, Rockets, Texans, Arrows when they were around as well. Um, you know, I, I, in Texas A&M, I, you know, there, there are definitely some blue bloods that, you know, are on my bucket list. I definitely like to go see a Duke basketball game and a North Carolina basketball game. Um, you know, I've got an appreciation for those pioneers that have come through. You know, I'm, I'm old school, Nolan Ryan, Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio. I, I enjoyed the way they played their individual sport. Uh, you know, I'm not a flashy you know, bat flipping kind of person. Uh, okay. I'm just kind of more old school that way. Nice, nice. You know, Nolan Ryan throwing up a 100, 100 mile per hour fastball up near your head because you're crowding the plate. He didn't have to say anything. He just yeah. going to throw it right at your head. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, if you come to the mound, he'll, he'll take care of the business. That's so, right. Yeah. Nice. All right, last question. How do people find out more about you and your company? Um, I definitely reach out, but my cell phone number, email, um, I don't pass off clients to assistants. I do take all my own phone calls. I do do all my own emails and, uh, I definitely can send that out. Uh, I've got about 95,000 people on my email blast. So, um, definitely reach out to me and, uh, I'll do what I can to help you make money in real estate.
Awesome. If it's okay with you, I include a cell phone number and email address in the show notes. Sure. Awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge. And it's been, I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will learn a ton from this, from this, uh, everything you talked about. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thanks, George.